Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. This evening we'll be considering Genesis 12, 1 through 3. But for context's sake, we will read 11.27 through 12.4. So while you're turning there, um, this is found on page 17 of your pew Bibles. While you're turning there, I want us to start thinking about a question. Because if you're reading the Bible up to this point, there should be one, one question in your mind as you approach this text. What's the plan? What's the plan? You see, God created Adam and Eve to be in this covenantal relationship with him in the garden. He creates the garden. He sets himself up as Adam and Eve's ruler, and he puts Adam and Eve in to keep and to work the garden under God's covenantal blessings. But Adam and Eve rebel against the Lord. Sin came into the world, and the whole moral, moral order and cosmic order is overturned. Like a rebellious prince in a father's kingdom, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Lord's presence. They lose the blessings of God, the land, and their king. Adam and Eve watch one of their sons murder the other, and everyone begins slowly to fall under God's judgment upon humanity for sin, rebelling against God, which is death. In Genesis 6, after Adam's offspring have populated the land. God sees the world drowning in sin, and so he drowns the world, but saves Noah and his family. Noah is this new start. He is a second Adam figure within the narrative, and God reestablishes his covenant relationship with Noah. But a whole lot has happened outside of humanity, but nothing has happened within humanity. They have had floods, they have had judgments, but nothing has changed and it quickly becomes evident that sin still is reigning as Noah sins against the Lord and the cycle continues. So as we get to Genesis 12, you should be asking, what's the plan? How are things going to be turned around? What's going to happen to humanity and all of creation? And I think if we are honest with ourselves today as we approach this text, this is not a question that is far from any of us. If you look at ourselves, look at the world, look at our culture, we have some pretty big problems, and we are in a little bit of trouble. As of right now, the world doomsday clock, I'm not really sure what that means, but the world doomsday clock is at two minutes. Our culture seems to be more divisive than ever. People struggle with conflict in, in churches, families, within themselves. And then there's that grim, inconvenient reality. You and I are on a slow journey towards an unfortunate and purposefully neglected end. You and I one day are going to die. So ask yourself, so what's your plan? What's your plan for the world? How do you think things are going to be turned around? What's, what's your plan for your life? You know, the business of the 21st century is great because it distracts us from these things. How do you think it's all going to be turned around? Do you think it's going to be turned around? How do you talk with your friends on Facebook or other people about these things? But there is good news. There is gospel news. In this passage, we see that God indeed has a plan, and he has planned to redeem humanity and all of creation. And he is going to do this through establishing a new kingdom 
through covenantal promises. Let us read Genesis 11, starting in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah and the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. The word of the Lord. So as our narrative begins with the family of Terah, now Terah lives in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, which if you were to do some archaeological digging, is most likely a city in modern-day southeast Iraq. At that time, it was called Mesopotamia. For what we know from other scripture passages, Terah and his family are pagans. And if you do a little more digging, the best guess we have is that they're probably moon worshippers. Now Abram, and now as if, if whoever knows their Bible, Abram gets a name change, so does Sarai. So if I ever drop Sarah instead of Sarai and Abram and Abraham, just give me some grace there because I might do that. But Abram does not start out a hero of our faith. If anything, when we first meet Abram, he is deep in pagan worship. Terah and his three sons begin a journey to travel from Ur across the Fertile Crescent to a land of Canaan, which is modern-day Palestine and Israel. But they do not make it all the way to Canaan, but settle in Haran, a town in modern-day Turkey on the Syrian border. And as Abram and his family are settling in Haran, God gives Abram a shocking command and an incredible promise. Here's the main idea. If you want to write something down, just to have something in the back of your mind as we're going through this text... The main idea for Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which is the passage we're looking at, is this. Our God is creating a kingdom through covenantal promises. Our God is creating a kingdom through covenantal promises. In the face of humanity's sin, God is taking the initiative and graciously binding himself in a covenant relationship with Abram and his offspring. This covenant becomes explicit and clear in Genesis 15 and 17, but its language is established in this call of God to Abram. God begins this covenant relationship with Abram through these commands and promises we see in verses 1 through 3. So if you were to build a kingdom, if we were to form a kingdom building committee, I know where committees are a big talk right now, if we wanted to build a kingdom, what would you need? 
What makes up a kingdom? In this passage, God reveals that he will establish the four necessary elements for a kingdom. The first one is that you need a place. Second one is that you need a people. The third one is that you need a king. And fourth, you need a blessing. So we have place, people, king, and blessing. Those are the four necessary elements of their kingdom. They are the four points of my sermon, and this is what we will be working through this evening. So the first point, first point necessary for a kingdom is a place. God commands Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. God is commanding Abram to leave his home. Leave everything you know, everything that's safe, everything that is comfortable, and go to the place I will show you. Pack the bags, grab the kids, load up the car, and drive. And I will tell you when to stop. This is not an easy command. I personally never like driving and not knowing where I am going. And I really don't like waiting for directions. One point of conflict in my marriage, Carrie's here. I love Carrie. We have this point of conflict. I don't like driving and not knowing when the next turn is. And so she wanted me to make clear that I'm the bad guy in this situation. She has nothing to do with this. But I have a hard time letting her be my co-pilot. I'd rather be looking at the GPS to know where I'm going myself. This new Georgia law is going to give me a ton of tickets because I see myself possibly holding my phone more than I should. But in the ancient world, this was quite a command to give someone. Today, you can travel most of the world behind your laptop. I was sitting in our office in 72 degrees looking at all these cities on Google Maps. Back, in the, back then, most of the world was completely unknown. No GPSs or iPhones. So leaving your family and venturing off into the wilderness to where you don't know you're going is basically suicide. Like, this command is a physical, physical command, though. Get up and move. But it's also a cultural and a moral command. He's not just moving his family across the Middle East. He's being called to forsake tradition, family connections, religion, safety, and security in order to follow the Lord. Follow me, Abram. Let me give you a new home. Let me give you a new way of life, a new way of worship. It's important to see, though, that other parts of Scripture don't necessarily see Abram's final destination as another piece of physical property. That's really important. And there are hints that God is actually calling Abram to not just go to another place of land, but almost like he's being called to an Eden-like place, like the first garden, the penultimate place. I think that Moses wants to see this connection. You don't have to, but if you flip over to Exodus 15, the people of Israel are celebrating God's deliverance um, from Egypt while passing through the sea. And Moses is writing this as he's taking the people of Israel to the land of Canaan, land of promise. And what does he say in Exodus 15, 17? Speaking of the Lord, he says, He will bring them in and plant them on your holy mountain, the land of Canaan as a holy mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you have established. God is promising to lead Abram to a new home, but it's not just another piece of Middle Eastern property. He's going to lead them to a second Eden, a second mountain sanctuary, if you will, based upon what we know of Eden, where they would dwell with God. 
But even more than that, this passage also has elements which points beyond the nation of Israel, Abram's offspring, and the land of Canaan to a renewed heavens and a new earth. What does the author of Hebrews say about Abram? He was a sojourn on the earth. Hebrews 11.10. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Even though they dwelled in tents in Canaan, they desired a better country. That is, a heavenly one. God will lead Abram and his descendants into the great land, but this ultimately points to God's desire to restore all of creation. When once renewed, God will dwell again with humanity. As a quick point of application, friend, do you long for this better land, Christian, this place where the curse will be no more? As the hymn puts it, he will remove the curse from the land, the curse as far as it is found, Emmanuel's land, or on contrast, is your life marked by comfortableness? If you view this world now, is this your home? How do you view where you live, your culture? It's good old Dublin, Georgia. If you look at the world, if you look at its loves, its comforts, its recreations, its desires and goals and dreams, does it look like the world's desires and dreams? Or do you live like you're merely a traveler passing on to a more glorious land? Where are your hopes? And where are your loves? In the things of earth or in the things of heaven? If God came up to you and he asked you, leave everything, abandon everything and follow me, could you do it? Could you leave everything to follow Jesus? Hasn't he? Luke 14, 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It is when we start to recognize that God is calling us to a far better land or country that we recognize that we are merely sojourns and aliens in this world. Point number one, promise of a kingdom is a land. Point number two of kingdom building, you need people. It's a little important. If you're going to have a kingdom, you can't just have a piece of property. You need people. So God promises to Abram people or sons. I will make of you a great nation. Now, why is this a big deal? If you were carefully reading, there's one little important detail that kind of makes God's command a little bit shocking. Sarai, Abram's wife, is barren. The couple's infertile. Not only are they infertile, they're past the age of having children. So the apostles will say of Abram and Sarai, they were considered as good as dead. It's important. They were dead as it relates to the ability to have children. You can look at Romans 4, Hebrews 11 for that. And Abram and Sarah's inability to have children becomes the focal point of this promise. If you're going to build a nation, good sense says, Grab a young couple. This, though, does not seem like a good plan. There will be no nation if Abram and Sarai cannot have children. But God is calling them to trust him when all the evidence points away from what God has said. Why is this a big deal? Why would God make such a big deal? Ask yourself this. Why is God making such a big deal of Sarah's barrenness? Because... This kingdom 
will be defined by a specific type of God's working to bring life where there appears to be only death and to bring into existence, Romans 4 says, that which does not exist to undo the effects of the curse. God will create abundant life in Sarai's womb, a great life. She'll be transformed into the mother of many nations. From Sarai 11, Hebrews 12 says, we're born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. From a womb that was marked only by the effects of the fall, death, crushed dreams, by God's miraculous power, it will bring forth Isaac. And from Isaac comes Jacob and the 12 sons and the 12 tribes and the nation of Israel, as well as the nations of the Edomites and the Ammonites and the Moabites. And 1,500 years later, it will bring forth our Savior, Jesus Christ. No power of God, no life in the womb, no sons, no nation, no savior. Even in this passage, we begin to see the thread that God will not be thwarted by death or the effects of the fall, but he will display his glorious saving grace through and in death, which is typological of God's salvific saving work at the cross and the empty tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. From an empty tomb, God brings forth a people spiritually born by the Spirit and Jesus' resurrection power. Here's a really important connection. If you're going to walk away with one thing, think about this. As the physical nation of Israel is a nation who were physically born from a place touched by sin and death that required the power of God, the spiritual nation of Israel, the true people of God, the church, is a people who were once dead in their sins and have been made alive by the Holy Spirit. This will define those in the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and what? The Spirit. He cannot enter the what? The kingdom of God. That which is born unto you of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, this is very important for how we understand churches today. From a natural perspective, without the power of God, we honestly should not have any churches. They shouldn't exist. Ask yourself, why does a church exist? Churches ex exist as the spiritual fruit of the preaching of the gospel, which glorifies Jesus and which the Holy Spirit applies Jesus' resurrection power to believers. Churches are full of Christians who have been born again, those to whom God has given spiritual life. And so as Lazarus was dead for four days and Jesus said, Lazarus, get up. He looks at you and he looks at me and he says, get up, rise. This new people is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Churches in the Bible's view, are full of Christians to whom God has spoken, rise. Christians who have seen the glory of Jesus and have repented of their sins and responded, have seen the depths of their sins and responded with repentance and faith. Those who are indwelled by the Spirit and follow Christ. 
This is important because whenever we baptize someone or take someone into membership, we are saying as a church that this death to life transformation has occurred. We are putting our stamp of approval as a church on someone's confession and baptism. Their faith is going public. We are looking at them and saying, this person was once dead and now they're alive. And churches, from the Bible's perspective, are made up of members to which this has all happened. Ones who have been transformed from death to life. Let's get practical a little bit. How do you grow a church? Sadly, a lot of churches really rely upon the ideas of marketing programs and attractions produced by the church growth movement. Not to dismiss them or to say that God doesn't work in these churches, not to say that marketing and program and attractions are bad in themselves, but it's a lot easier to attract a crowd than to grow a church. For one, you really just need a big budget, some good-looking people, and a killer kids program. But to build a true, biblical, gospel, spirit-filled church requires the power of God to bring dead people to life. Church growth tactics can draw a crowd, but only God gives life to souls. We as a church can be drawn to focus on programs and marketing techniques to draw people into our churches, or we can preach the gospel and pray with earnestness and ask for God to pour out his spiritual life onto our church and community. It sadly is true that what you win people with is what you win people to. Now be careful if you laugh at that. You can't grow a church without programs. Look, look at all these people going to these other churches. That's not how it works. Who do you sound like? How can a 100-year-old woman have a child? Do not approach Christ's church with Sarah's unbelief. In Genesis 18, how does God rebuke her? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Also, we ought to care about whether or not our church acts like it only exists because of the power of God. We ought to make sure that our members are bearing witness to the fact of this spiritual new birth. We must care that people's lives and their profession match what the gospel has done to give a public witness to this resurrection power. A church fails to bear witness to this resurrection power when its members give evidence of hardened hearts who pursue sin and look and act and live and love like the world. Point number two, if you're going to build a kingdom, you need people. And praise be to God that he is pouring out his spirit into the lives of people across this world every single day by the preaching of the gospel and by saints praying and him glorifying himself in their midst. Point number three, if we were in our Build a Kingdom workshop, you need to have a king, a ruler. Now you might have to buckle up a little bit because this one's going to be a little fun. How do we get this in the text? It's just found in the next part of God's promise for Abram that he will make Abram's name great. Now on face value, this seems to point to God giving Abram a great reputation. Abram's name will be remembered. We can see the value of having a great name, being remembered after someone's gone. I don't know if you guys are keeping up with Disney movies, but they're pumping them out all the time. Disney's recent movie Coco played upon this idea. Their song, Remember Me, though I have to say goodbye. But there you go. Disney's Coco plays onto that. In our story, God gives Abram a name. Now this is important because it underscores the fact that in the face of Abram's prospects of not having sons or a legacy, he will have offspring. 
This has also been interesting. Flip over to Genesis 11. This should be close to you guys, just the chapter previous. The idea of Abram giving a name in context is interesting if you consider Genesis 11. What's Genesis 11? The Tower of Babel narrative. Why do people, why do the people want to build a tower? Look at Genesis 11:4. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They did it to make a name for themselves. They were disobeying God's command to spread throughout the earth and to fill the earth with the knowledge of God by staying put and building a great name for themselves in this tower. That God was not honoring their feeble attempts to make a name for themselves. And right afterwards, what does he do? Abram, I will make your name great. Universal principle. You see this in 1 Peter 6, 5 through 6. Whoever tries to exalt themselves will be humbled, but whoever trusts in the Lord as in this passage, will be exalted. But Jared, you haven't talked about this kingship idea. Let's go. So the idea of name not only points to Abram having a legacy, it points to kingship. Within the Abram narrative, God promises that not only will he have sons, but he will also have kings come from him. Genesis 17, 6. There are two ideas in Abram's life that link kingship to Abram. First, the greatness of Abram's name and legacy in the Genesis narrative comes from his king-like actions. Genesis 14, there's a tribal war between the kings and Canaan. His, son, his son-in-law, his, his nephew, or his nephew, gets caught in one of the conquests in the aftermath of a skirmish, and he gets dragged off with these four other kings. Then Abram gets his guys, and then he runs off after them to save them. And him by himself and his, I think, 318, um, 318 armed men, they take on the strength of multiple kings and then save these back, save Lot, they come back home. What do these kings do? They pay Abram homage, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. He is on par in this passage and in this story, or even greater than the kings of Canaan. Now, the Abram narrative, though, in the covenant anticipates future covenants that are coming. And these future covenants link Abram's name with kingship. When we get around to David, the offspring of Abram, in 2 Samuel, God makes his own covenant, building upon the Abrahamic promises. When he says to David in 2 Samuel 7, 9, he says this, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. In 2 Samuel 8.14 later reads, And David made a name for himself as king when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Psalm looks at the king and he prays this prayer. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. So from one perspective, that was a lot, but from one perspective, one has a great name in the Old Testament through the great accomplishments of a king or ruler. And Abram's name will be great in part of the things that he accomplishes, but also his offspring accomplishes. That's one layer. Abram and his offspring will have a great name because of his king-like actions. Second layer, but there's a second reason. Abram's name is great because God's name is great. God reveals himself to Israel as what? 
the God of Abram. Abram is linked to God's self-revelation in the life of the nation of Israel. Abram's name is linked to God's redemptive works. Whenever Israel fails in the prophets, which they do often, what is constantly referred back to? My faithfulness to Abram and my covenant with Abram. I will be gracious to you, O Israel. So you have Abram as a king, and then you have his name will be great because of God and his name be linked to God. And then there's one final way. In Scripture, we see that Abram's name is great because his offspring will receive a name, and his offspring will receive the greatest name, the name above all names, to which every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Abram's name is great because Jesus' name is great. Who is Jesus? The king of the kingdom, the son of David, the offspring of Abram. If you just look at the Gospel of Matthew, I counted seven times in which the son of David is referenced to Jesus in a really important way. Matthew 1.6, Matthew 1.20, Matthew 9.27, Matthew 12.23, Matthew 15.22, Matthew 20.31, Matthew 21.9. And what's, what's the constant refrain in there? Have mercy on me, O son of David. The king, this king, his name is great because he lays his life down for his people. The king who is the true shepherd. The king who intercedes right now for his people. The king who will one day put all things under his feet. And as a quick point of reflection, in the same way that God was faithful to Israel despite their sin, because of his relationship with Abram, God remains faithful to us because of Jesus and because of his great name, because of the things which he has done. Oh friend, are you struggling to feel close to God? Are you struggling with distance? Are you struggling with sin? His faithfulness to you is not because of you. His faithfulness to you is because of Jesus and his name is great and he intercedes for you. You have have nothing to fear if Jesus is yours, if you believe in him. Part of submitting to King Jesus is admitting that Jesus' name is greater than your name. One of the greatest barriers that people really have to following Jesus comes down to this. Who has the better name? Who receives more honor? Who is more important? It's an issue of pride. Who is ultimate? For you to confess that Jesus and his name is great is for your name not to be great. Jesus is Lord and you are not. He is the king and you are the servant. He must increase and you and I must what? Decrease. Jesus' name is great. Fourth, third part of the kingdom. Let's move on to the fourth part. The fourth and last piece of our kingdom is the idea of blessing. We see this verse and the end of verse two. In the middle of verse two, he says, I will bless you and so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I took the liberty to translate this. Don't get me in trouble with translation committees. I will not bless those who do not bless you. It's the inverse. I will, I will bless all the nations through you. Now, the usage of the word blessing raises an important question. What does it mean? What does it mean to be blessed? In Abram's life and the life of Israel, you can see blessing in material form. We see the Lord not blessing the house of Pharaoh because of them taking Sarai in Genesis 12, 17. The Lord increases Abram in monetary wealth in Genesis 13, 2. Abram has military victories over his enemies, which are attributed to the Lord. Abraham looks blessed. 
But we cannot flatten the idea of blessing to mere monetary or physical blessing, lest we risk turning God into a genie, ignoring half the Bible, and stop pre- start preaching a gospel of prosperity. When God chooses to use financial gain, it is an external symbol. When he uses financial gain as a symbol of blessing, it is a symbol to the spiritual reality of God's presence with his people to bless. The source of blessing is God. This points to the fact that in God blessing his people, God is dwelling with his people. God is omnipresent. And this is a big fancy word that means that God is everywhere all time. That's even not really satisfactory. But from what we know of space and time, God is greater and in it as spirit. And when we see God working and appearing in scripture, it is always the correct manifestation of his character to the moral standing and actions of humanity. So whenever God appears, he is rightly responding to what is happening in humanity. So when God comes in judgment, it is his right response against sin. But when God declares a sinner righteous, it is a right response to the sinner's repentance and faith, and it is also the right response of Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. I think that's helpful, side, side track, that's helpful with understanding times when God is regretting and how to make use of that language. Um, I can talk with you about that later. find that interesting. And God blessing Abraham, he is committing to dwell with him, his offspring, and the nations. Those are those three parts. He will bless you, Abram. He will bless the people, the offspring of Abram, and all the nations will be blessed, and God will be present with them to bless. He will bless his people through the constant manifestation of his goodness, his grace, his riches, and his glory among his people. But true blessing is not found in the gifts and the benefits of God but in God himself. In a right relationship with God, in communion with God, the greatest blessing in life is to behold the glory of God, to see and experience the physical manifestation of the infinite glory of God, displaying God's infinite perfections and character to see each of the divine attributes in a glorious display in its ultimate degree of eternal perfection. Think about it, to see God's knowledge on full display. Not even full display, because we can't even know all God's knowledge. To see his power, the power that spoke creation into existence, his eternity. When we change every day, God never changes. His wisdom in planning such a great salvation, his, his love towards us at the cross, his mercy towards us, his justice, and even his wrath, to witness all of these to their infinite divine perfection. And then to even know that when we see these things, it's not even the simple and unified essence of God because God in his essence dwells in unapproachable light. God is utterly incomprehensible. And yet every act of God, every word of God, the manifestation of his presence, particularly in Jesus, every act of God is a display of God's glorious character. When we catch a vision of this this God, we feel utterly small. We can only join with the psalmist who says, 
What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? To this one we owe everything. The one in whom we find our purpose and our meaning in relationship with him, to whom our hearts were created to find ourselves eternally satisfied in him, that we might find it our chief end to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We ought to ask, though, how can a sinner receive God's blessing? How can we have access to God and to enjoy his presence? The story of Israel in the wilderness is a shocking display of what happens, though, when a holy God tries to dwell among a sinful people. Man has to construct all these rituals and all these barriers to both uphold the holiness of our God and to keep our people, his people, safe from his wrath. But man cannot dwell with the holy God. If anything, these structures in the Old Testament fail to protect the people and maintain God's glory, and so man falls under judgment. And sadly, right now, our natural hearts are turned away from this glory, and we find satisfaction naturally in everything else other than God. We do not want the blessings of God. The nations do not want the blessing of God. Man find, does not find God as satisfying as it should. Have you ever wondered why all of us have endless hungers and desires that even though we pursue will never satisfy. But God reveals his glory in his son, the image of God. And God glorified himself and put his character on full display of his love, his justice, and his wisdom at the cross and the empty tomb. He glorified his son. And the collateral of this glorious display of God's grace is that all things are restored and that we have access to God a people who are captivated by his glory and find knowing God more satisfying than anything one can find in the world. The, Christ, the church and the Christian life is this theater of display of the glory of God for all of creation. Hear the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, 9 through 10. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of what? The mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. When God told Abraham that you would be blessed, that your offspring would be blessed, his offspring being us who are the spiritual offspring of Abraham who believe in Jesus. And he said that the nations would be blessed. He was foreseeing when redeemed humanity would one day stand before his throne, witness his glory and be fully satisfied. As Christians, we now even get to see a foretaste of this in our salvation. Really interesting, Genesis 1, uh, 12, 2 through 3. Contrast that with Ephesians 1.3. So I will, I will, you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever dishonors you, I will curse. And in you shall all the families, all the nations, every people group, from Zambia to China to Russia to Madagascar to South America to Dublin, Georgia, every family of the earth will be blessed. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done what? Blessed us in Christ with what? 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are these blessings? The blessings Abraham now experienced in Ephesians 1. He predestined us. He adopted us. He redeemed us. He forgave us. He revealed to us the mystery of his will. He gave to us an inheritance. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his Son. And now God is drawing out people from every tongue and tribe and nation through his glory shown in the face of Jesus Christ into this kingdom promised to Abram to display to all of creation that he is more satisfying and more valuable than anything one can find on earth. He is worth giving everything up for. God gave Abraham a great promise of a kingdom that he was establishing through covenantal promises. These promises reached their focal point in the person and work of Jesus Christ and are displayed right now in the life of the church. And God was laying out for Abram his plan that would begin here in Genesis 12 and would reach its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. Where is all this going? Where is history going? Where is our life going? Well, what's the land of promise? The new heavens and the new earth. Who are the people promised to Abram? Those who have been brought to spiritual life from death as a nation born from an infertile womb. Who is the king the offspring of Abram, the son of David, who has the name above every name. What's the blessing? Dwelling in and knowing in the glorious God of our salvation. So, what's the plan? For the world? For your life? And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun or moon, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. My friends, those who are here, that's the plan. Let's pray.